0: Welcome to the American Thoracic Society Sleep and Respiratory Neurobiology podcast series on pediatric path adherence. This is the fifth podcast in the series. Today we will discuss handling loss to follow up and when to stop psychology involvement and seek alternatives to path therapy. This podcast includes pediatric pulmonary psychology and sleep specialists nationally and is an open discussion of our different practices between practitioners and patients. Our panel includes, in no particular order, Dr. Kelly Lee Harford, Pediatric psychologist and Dr. Roberta Liu, pediatric sleep physician at the Emory and Children's Pediatric Institute in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Wendy Ward, pediatric psychologist, and Dr. Sampriya Jambikar, pediatric pulmonologist at Arkansas Children's in Little Rock, Arkansas. Dr. Allison Clark, pediatric psychologist, and Dr. Stephen Sheldon, pediatric sleep physician at and and Robert H. Lurie, Children's Hospital of Chicago and the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, Dr. Daniel Lewin, Pediatric Psychologist and Sleep Specialist at the Sleep Health and Wellness Center in Santa Barbara, California, Miriam Weiss, Pediatric Nurse Practitioner at Children's National in Washington, D.C., Drs. Marnie Nagel and Amy Morse, Pediatric Sleep Psychologists at Chuck Children's Hospital, And I am Dr. Ashana Chin, Pediatric Pulmonologist and Sleep Physician at CHOC Children's. I am part of the ATS SRN Committee. For everyone's titles, please listen to the introduction in our first podcast. This is a discussion on how different practices nationally tackle loss of follow-up and when to stop psychology involvement and seek alternatives to pap therapy. For our practice at CHOC Children's, we will continue to reach out to families for no-shows. However, with three consecutive no-shows and difficulty contacting the patient and family, our providers can have staff message the referring physician. Further follow-up is not automatically scheduled and the referring provider is able to refer again. However, we are faced with options like Inspire Now, where providers essentially have to make the decision to no longer continue pap therapy or hold pap care. Often, we will seek alternatives while concurrently working on pap therapy with families themselves, deciding when to seek Inspire if they meet FDA approval criteria. Is there a cut-up your providers have been utilizing or specific criteria your providers have been utilizing in your programs?
1: I think, you know, having worn the hat of a program officer at NIH many years ago um, and seeing so many grants coming through and reading many publications on this topic, I think as a field we can really go a long way toward really talking about our treatments as highly efficacious and not... As a difficult intervention, because as with any intervention, appearance is also always a major issue. So I think if we just shift the focus in how we talk about CPAP as highly efficacious and tolerable, and um, um, and that you know clearly we all know that there needs to be some problems solved with specific patients, but but careful and thoughtful diagnosis and a shift in, in our verbiage, I think across the field can go a long way. I think also it depends upon the severity of the patient's sleep disorder breathing. Um, I, I don't think psychology should ever be stopped in, in any of these patients. So psychology intervention should be, be continued throughout because what we're dealing with almost always is a multidisciplinary problem. And so having a behavioral sleep medicine specialist, a psychologist involved with the patient all along and with the continuing relationship is is always a good thing. I also think in, in our center, at least is, this differs between um, uh, our practitioners, but I have always included our dental colleagues, dental sleep medicine specialists in early with some of the milder and, moder- and milder and moderate patients rather than the very severe patients, because you can do multiple therapeutic interventions at the same time. Uh, we've done maxillary expansion and orthotropic uh, procedures with non-invasive maxillary advancement by by the pediatric sleep medicine dental specialist while we're doing CPAP at the same time, and uh, uh, it worked really, really well. So I think that, that we should think of it always as a, an interdisciplinary problem and shouldn't think about when we should be discontinuing um, a certain professional's in, uh, involvement. I think it needs to be continued as an interdisciplinary problem until the patient, our, our patients graduate to the adult center and we're doing transitional care. And that involves an interdisciplinary approach as well. So, so um, uh, I, don't, I don't think that, that there's a time. It, it's patient-specific, it's age-specific, and I think um, multidisciplinary involvement needs to be continuous all along.
2: I I so appreciate this discussion. Um, Both comments made I agree wholeheartedly with um, so far in this particular podcast. Um, I I feel like uh, some groups have limitations on space and time, not enough professionals, let's say not enough psychologists, not enough time with RT, um, whatever it is, to be able to do what aspirationally is the best thing for these patients. And we need to, rather than say a patient has failed and pull them off, we need to advocate for their continued involvement. And both Dr. Harford and Dr. John Baker, who have worked with me extensively know, I am loath to give up on a patient. But I would, I do call a team meeting where we have space and time to take a step back and look at what the barriers to adherence are and make a different plan. And so I would encourage those um, on the call or listening to, to think about doing that. Um, and really look at that barriers to adherence piece in detail, come up with a different plan, implement that plan. If that still doesn't work, come back with a team meeting. In some cases, take multiple team meetings to get there, but but um, stopping after X number of visits, I do not think is the way to go.
3: Yeah, and I would, you know, I think... Um, you know i think for us it's really an ongoing discussion with the family and with the team about how things are going um how the family is feeling about the plan um and and the how how they're tolerating cpap you know i don't think having any um person involved ever should be not involved but i think sometimes at different stages we step back um, while a different person takes a more primary role. Um and, and you know, that happens. You know, if we're if I'm kind of primary, we're working hard on CPAP and things go well, then the surgeon takes um, you know, more of a back seat at that time. Um, you know, if things are really um not going as well as we had hoped, the family is getting frustrated, um, this child's sleep apnea is really severe, um, there might be another discussion with the surgeon. Um, And we have kind of an interdisciplinary team that's me and Dr. Lu and an ENT um, that we see a lot of these families in. And so these are kind of ongoing discussions that we have with all of us, um, depending on how things are going. And I think what
4: what Danny said about uh, your approach to CPAP, when you first um, diagnose them and if you recommend CPAP, I think um, that's part of the uh, intake when you see the patient. We always, some families want to know, why don't you just prescribe it and just send it to my home? Why do I need to come see you in sleep clinic if some other doctor told me I need a CPAP? So we always talk about, you know, why we're prescribing it, who we prescribe it to, you know, why, how it's an effective treatment, expectations, close follow-up. So I think that always helps with setting, um, you know, the, the the plan, so that people know what to expect. But um, I, and I agree, I don't think there is like a certain, you know, a certain time frame that we would, you know, I I I don't think I usually say they our patients failed CPAP. Um, I think that's something I hear thrown around a lot, but. I think um, we we will see if a patient is struggling with um, compliance, which is very often due to social um, issues. Um, We will certainly have them um, seen in our multidisciplinary clinic with um, dental, sleep medicine, ENT. And um, that will sometimes be when we'll utilize a DICE. Um, ENT will offer to do a DICE and see, Okay, let's see if there's any surgical interventions. And we all, you know, continue to work with CPAP, see um, what surgical interventions. And also, lastly, we will kind of see when we last did a sleep study, a baseline, and sometimes, you know, doing a repeat baseline will kind of help families understand where we're at. So you can see, even if they think the snoring improved, really their sleep study may show continued or worsened severe sleep apnea. And sometimes that can be a motivating factor.
1: That's why that's uh, I agree with Miriam and I agree with Danny. But I that's why we tend to do uh, repeat studies um split nights um every, yearly or every two years on these on these patients so that we can uh show the parents the continued need, uh the efficacy of, of the procedure. And depending upon the age of the patient, there often may need may uh be a need to readjust the pressures and retitrating them is is always appropriate. Um I think also it's important to look at at uh way practice guidelines are created and including the parent in the decision, and including the family in the decision, it is is always part of that guideline process because they need to they need to participate in the decision making as well. And as as long as our job I guess is to provide informed consent to the patient, but real informed consent, so that they know risks, benefits, and 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 outcomes, and they can make a decision because we're not going to be making the decision unless the patient is, is obviously so severe that that uh they are at the risk of uh, of requiring tracheostomy um but the other patients the parents need to be involved in decision making and the more involved the parents get the better the compliance will be and the more efficacious the intervention will be
4: yeah i wholeheartedly agree with everything that's been shared so far i think um as we've been talking about you know even though maybe the end goal is PAP desensitization, I find that um a good chunk of the time I'm spending more of the visits focusing on family stress and other barriers. Um, you know, a lot of the kids we see are very medically complex and this just feels like another thing to add to their list. Um, so with one recent family, it was really even just applying for nursing support so that they like had a break, right? So There might be other things that we can do so that parents feel like they have the capacity even to work on this. Um, So I think often just taking a step back and trying to figure out what's getting in the way makes a huge
5: difference. Yeah. And to to piggyback off of Dr. Clark, I think as the behavioral sleep specialist, um, you know, meeting families where they're at, understanding what incorporating PAP treatment into their daily lives would look like, um, what would help make it easier, what is getting in the way. And I think oftentimes, you know, we want to jump to to the sensitization treatment. And, um, and if we don't spend enough time understanding what the barriers are, you know, I can get them to be compliant in clinic for the 30 to, you know, 45 minutes that they're in the room with me. And then when they come back a month or three months later, you know, parents will say, yeah, you you can, can I bring you home with me? Because they'll do it for you, but getting them to do it for me every night consistently for many hours. Um, is something that is incredibly challenging for families. And so I think that that is really important. Sometimes the goal of, of my visit is to, you know, to move them along a continuum of change, getting closer towards incorporating pap treatment into their regular routine. And so it might look a little bit different than the goal of this session is is actually not desensitization, but it's doing some of this other work that is going to make desensitization more successful.
0: Has any other institution started referring their patients for obstructive sleep apnea towards InSpire or have they just continued on PAP therapy until transition of care to adulthood?
6: So we are one of the multi center Um, trial locations for the down syndrome study so the ENT Dr. Nikila Raul who's in the refractory OSA clinic with us she does those implants Um, so now if they are 18 and older we will consider implanting them Um, and we have a couple of down syndrome kids but it's usually still a pretty long discussion in that clinic. And it's definitely the entire team together because while the family, when they hear it from the community and they hear that there's an alternative to the CPAP, they get really excited. But when we explain to them that it's something that's implanted into you and then there are wires that are going to wrap around your hypoglossal nerve and different branches of it and that your tongue is going to stick out, it's like they need to understand that there are all these other components to it that are going to affect how that kid is feeling at night and so forth. Um, so sometimes it's a discussion that has lasted months and months and months, some of them a couple of years, right? <laughs> and for and the interesting thing also is when the parents, one one key part, I think, of our multidisciplinary clinic is that there are times where Dr. Harford, Dr. Raul, and I will all go in at the same time to see that patient and what I realized at some of these appointments is that sometimes each of us is so subspecialized that our mode of thinking and answering a parent's questions and even how we understand that patient's parent's questions may be so framed in our subspecialty that we don't really realize when another provider is answering a parent's question that the parent's actually wanting to know other information. So um I think that's been really helpful having us all three together to have that long discussion with the family.
1: We we really haven't used uh the inspire here at all. Um the the biggest uh, the biggest focus has been on creating an approach uh, an appropriate transitional team to our adult colleagues that are across the street. Um uh, that's been, that that has been a chore as well, but but we haven't, I, I don't know one patient that we've done any of those procedures on.
0: And since you mentioned dental involvement and in mandibular advancement devices, have your dentists done a cutoff for age categories where they're able to place the device? Some of our dentists, and not everybody, provides the same type of Cut off, but some don't want to provide a mandibular advancement device until the child's 18. Um, if your dentists run into the same age cutoff, some are willing to provide it sooner. So,
1: our dentist does um, a little different procedure. It's not a mandibular advancement device. It's actually a maxillary and mandibular advancement device. So that it, it's an orthotropic procedure that was it's called bioblock orthotropics that was created well back in the 40s by john mu in in the uk uh and it it is it pulls things forward pulls the mid face forward non-invasively um and he, and our dentist uh um he'll start very very early he'll start he'll he'll put appliances in as long as they have teeth. He'll, in fact, he's done some work with, with edentulous patients, um, to protect their palate so that their palate doesn't become elongated. And he'll put a, um, an edentulous appliance up that fits on the, over the palate. and the ortho, the bioblock orthotropic procedure it takes time that's the the biggest issue that we have not been able to get 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 through the other issue is that we we have tried to create uh, or tried to look at outcome variables that are appropriate and it doesn't seem like the ahi or the rdi or the or even the oxygen saturation data or the the um, best data to look at. Um, uh, Our dentist, Kevin Boyd, has looked at um, various uh, angles and and bony landmark changes. And clearly, radiographically, the upper airway can be easily enlarged. Sometimes it takes three three years, but he can enlarge the nasopharynx by 50% or more just using this this orthotropic uh, procedure. The question that we have had, and I've always talked with them about it, is so what? If you can enlarge the airway, is it really changing the physiology of the airway? Or over a three-year period of time, has it resolved on its own? We don't know that, and the outcome variables we haven't been able to identify yet, other than clearly being able to uh, in- enlarge the size of the nasopharynx Uh, like doing a non-invasive LaForte procedure. But he'll he'll do very, very young children. He'll start at three and four years of age. Um, There is a uh, a dentist in Los Angeles who will even do adults and who have had uh, um, orthodontic procedures where teeth had been removed when they were children and it resulted in very significant crowding, and he'll open up the space and put implants in to put the teeth back, and it results in enlargement of the of the upper airway. Whether physiologically it makes a difference, we don't we don't know yet. We have anecdotes that that I'd love to talk about, but really they're just anecdotes. Uh, sickle cell patients who had significant apnea, and he's been able to enlarge their nasal pharynx and they haven't had a, a hospitalization in 2 years so but that's one patient i is that an anomaly or would you not have had would you not have had hospitalizations anyway whether there was intervention so i i don't know what the answer is clearly he can enlarge the, the nasal airway and and beginning beginning in very very young patients
4: I think the biggest limitation with uh oral appliances that our um dentist um who specializes in sleep medicine has is insurance. Um, you know, since it's not FDA approved in children or in, in any children. So um I, I I think you know we we have our uh dentist in our multi multidisciplinary clinic and who will do evaluations and suggest appliances but um I, I, we haven't had it that many patients that we've been able to move forward with that um treatment because of
1: insurance limitations they also won't pay for the bioblock it has to be it has to be paid out of pocket
5: Dr. Weiss I I appreciate how um When we were talking about Inspire, how you added in that it's really important for the patients and families to understand what the implant will require and what it will look like. I've certainly worked with patients who, you know, as teenagers, 12, 13, 14, they couldn't wait to be 18 to have this other option to be able to get rid of this tap machine and equipment. Um, you know, the almost as if the day they turned 18 they were going to go in and have Inspire implanted. And you know, I for, for some patients it, it it maybe it is the right path for them and, and the answer. Um and I think it's really important to understand with all of the treatments, um, the the risks, the benefits, the potential alternatives and what we would expect outcomes to look like.
0: This is now the end of this podcast, and we would like to thank you for joining us.